Would you pray with me this morning? Father, God, I come before you today. My spirit is, is troubled. God, I so deeply want to experience more of who you are. And I know that in, in this church family, we want to abide in you. God, it just seems sometimes like such a struggle to do that. And especially right now, it seems like there are so many obstacles, and yet we know that, that you gave us your word, that Jesus, when you speak these words, you weren't speaking them um, as if they wouldn't apply today. You weren't ignorant of any of our circumstances or our situations. You know full well every detail of our lives, every detail of our hearts. And so, God, we just we submit to you. And we pray that you would take this time and that you'd use it for your glory. And that you would unite us around your word and keep us close to you, abiding in your love. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we began this uh, series last week. If you didn't hear the message, I would encourage you to go back and listen to Jeff. He did a great job of kicking this off and this dealing this this passage of John fifteen through seventeen, and it's just an incredibly rich section of scripture as Jesus is just speaking to his people and then praying on behalf of his people. And he ta- he's talking in this section about abiding in him. And so Jeff talked about that last week of what it means to abide in Jesus. And how there are these great promises attached to abiding in Jesus, but also consequences of not abiding in Jesus. That, that we are called to bear fruit. And that if we don't bear fruit, then, then we are cut off. But if we bear fruit, then we are abiding in him. But that we aren't able to bear fruit apart from abiding in him. And like so many of the things in the Christian faith, this is such a simple statement but it also feels very complex and very overwhelming at times. Like what could be more simple than to say, if you want to live a life that is pleasing to God, then just abide in Jesus. It seems like a simple statement, but it is deep and complex. And what he does in this next section is he gives a little more substance for us, a little more help. And what's challenging for us when we, when we deal with these statements in Scripture that are both very direct and simple, but also very layered, is we, we try to help one another understand more of what that looks like. And so we give examples and illustrations, and that is a good thing to do. It's good for us to think and consider about, okay, what does it mean to abide in Jesus, and how do we do that? What we want to be on guard against, though, is creating a new law around that illustration or that example. So, for example, it's good if you want to abide in Jesus, we would say absolutely read the word, be in the word. And so we have a reading plan and we want to do that together as a church. Or just like part of that is we just want you to daily be in this rhythm of being in the word of God, how important that is. And that's a, that's a great way to abide in Jesus. But we then get in trouble if we kind of make that a new law and we say, well, in order to be pleasing to God, then you must do these things. 
you must read the Bible daily. And if you don't read the Bible daily, it starts to swerve into it. If you don't read the Bible, if you miss it, then God is very disappointed in you. And now you are not able to abide in him. And the enemy actually gets in there and creates this thing that was meant to help us, meant to encourage us, meant to serve as as a way to, to kind of help us learn what it looks like to abide in Jesus. And he takes it and it becomes this heavy yoke that is placed on us. And so we want to be careful of that. And one of the ways we protect ourselves from that is to just be true to what Scripture is actually saying. And not start like filling in the blanks with all of these other things. Just saying, okay, what is Jesus actually telling us? And he does give us help here in understanding abiding in him in this passage in John chapter 15, starting in verse 9. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. He tells us, what actually keeps us abiding in him? What the, the glue of this whole thing is, the, the substance of this abiding, this connection of God to Jesus and then Jesus to us. What actually holds it together? And it is love. He says in verse 10, look again, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. We see in this passage this very simple idea that it is God's love for us that keeps us. And we are to abide in that love. How do we abide? We abide by keeping his commandments. And like Jeff said last week, they are commandments for our joy. That's the the purpose of commandments. They're not meant to steal our joy or to keep us from doing things that we would actually find meaningful or or helpful to us. They are to give us fullness of joy. And so he says, if you want to abide in me, and we're all saying like, yes, I want to abide in you, Jesus. Well, how do we abide? Will we abide in in your love? Well, how do we do that? Well, you keep my commandments. Well, what's that commandment? That you love one another as Jesus has loved you. That's the statement. You're abiding in his love. And the way you stay abiding in him is to love others the way he has loved you. That's how critical this idea of loving others is. That it is actually the bearing fruit, bearing of fruit. The bearing of fruit is the loving of one another. And we sometimes in our culture, especially right now, we have this tendency to look at this command to love one another as kind of this 
extra thing, this bonus thing. This thing that like, oh, I know it's the way in which I should go about these things. But this is what God is actually commanding us to do. Like we need to stand for truth and we need to stand for holiness and we need to, to do these different things. And, and, and yes, we're supposed to do it in a loving way. It's kind of like this tack on thing, this flavoring that happens to the real substance of what God is telling us to do and commanding us to do. But what we see in this passage is that love is not a seasoning or an add-on, it is the thing. It is the substance. It is inseparable from the love of God. Our love of others is inseparable. It is stated plainly. Jesus states it plainly. Paul states it plainly. John states it plainly. If you do not love your neighbor, then you do not love God period. In 1 John 4, he says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. See, love is not the icing on the cake. It's not a bonus. It's not something that you kind of grow into and some people have it and other people don't. It's not a, a special gifting that some people can do and say, oh, I just, you know, really, I just really love people. And other people say like, ah, it's just not really my thing. It's, it is the thing. And sometimes we look at passages like this and we want to overcomplicate it and we want to jump into all these different things. Well, he's qualify it and, and, and try to add things to it, but that is a dangerous game to play. Jesus says, this is what I've commanded you. And it's not the only time he says it. That we are called to love one another. <clears throat> and immediately I get the objections. I, I have them too. Like I, I pipe up and like say, well, what about, but what about truth? What about righteousness? What about holiness? What about justice? What about all these different things that are also valued in Scripture. Like, don't you have to kind of balance that and throw that in? I understand the sentiment, but you kind of have to look at the fact that Jesus doesn't seem to feel the need to balance it. Like, he doesn't give any qualification of like, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of things, but hey, make sure you do all these other things in a loving way. What we find is that he is saying very simply and very directly to us multiple times that how God has loved you, you then love others and everything else will hang on those things. Everything else will flow out of that stream. It is not something that gets added into these other things like truth and holiness and righteousness. It is the mother of all those things. It is from the love of God. And one thing I've noticed, one of the reasons why we get uncomfortable with that is we start worrying about how that's going to get abused. Start worrying about people saying like, okay, well, yeah, so see, you just love God. We've talked about this before. Love God and love others. How simple could it be? And so, yep, I just like whatever anybody wants to do, whatever anybody wants to say, whatever you want to believe, whatever, you know, it's just live and let live and don't worry about any of those other things. 
And so we hear that and we say, well, that's not right. And so then we try to overcorrect. And what we do so often is when we see people going off in this ditch over here, is we try to steer everything over here so that we can go off into this ditch over here. Now, I don't know how many of you have driven cars or horseless carriages, but ditches are not good. Are we in agreement with that? Like cars and ditches don't mix well. So you don't fight against this falling into this ditch over here by trying to fall into this ditch over here. That's not how we do that. We don't fight a perversion of truth and God's word on this side by creating another perversion of truth over here to balance it out. Jesus is constantly put in these types of situations and what we find is he just declares the truth through his love for his people. Love is what keeps him anchored in all of that. It's why he doesn't overreact to people and doesn't, doesn't go off into other things. Like He's without sin because love is his driving force. So no, love is not people-pleasing. But if you read the Gospels, you couldn't possibly conclude if Jesus is love, if God is love, and so everything Jesus does is demonstrated love, you could not possibly conclude that to love people means to just be a people-pleaser. You couldn't possibly conclude that loving people means to just do whatever anybody wants you to do. You, possibly, you could not possibly conclude that just loving people is a cowardly act. You also couldn't conclude that you somehow, there's a justification for sacrificing love in order to speak direct truth or to answer people's objections or to make sure that they don't see you condoning things that God doesn't condone. Jesus defines love. So what I want to do is just look at this passage and say, how does he define love here? And to embrace that and say, okay, this is what he's calling us to do. It starts in verse 9 when he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That's a verse that I often skip past. And I heard a, a sermon, uh, a message by Francis Chan, where he just stopped everything around that verse. And he said, just stop and think about this. And this is the question he asked. And I'm going to ask the same one. Consider, just think about for a second, how much does God the Father love Jesus? Just, just think about that for a second. God's love for Jesus. What kind of a love is that? How deep is that love? How abiding is that love? How full is that love? And what Jesus says is that he loves you in the same way. That should make us feel weird, uncomfortable. Like you'd think there'd at least be a little bit of qualification with that. He doesn't qualify it. The love that holds the entire universe together, the Trinity, 
the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the love that unites that and from which all of creation and everything comes out of that same love is exactly the same love that Jesus loves you and me with. Now let me ask you, does that kind of love feel like an add-on? Does that feel like just something that we're supposed to season the other important things with? Or does that feel like the source of all things? Does that feel like the driving force behind all things? So how does he describe this kind of love? We could definitely go to 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul talks about the characteristics of love. But I want to say, okay, what does Jesus say here? How does he describe this kind of love? And there's three things that I notice in this passage that I want to pull out. The, one that, one, the first thing that I would point out is that real love, this kind of love is sacrificial. So this love that God loves us with and that then we are in turn to love our neighbor with. When he says, keep my commandments, love my neighbor, he's saying, love your neighbor. He's saying, love your neighbor the way I have loved you. And one way that he has loved us is sacrificially. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Real love is sacrificial. We tend to, because we're just of our sin nature, we tend to try to figure out how do I love people in the way that's least costly to myself. We want to we try to figure out ways that I can love people where it doesn't, it doesn't cost me anything or it doesn't cost me very much. But love that Jesus is describing is a sacrificial love. It is a costly love. It's laying down of his very life. And we are called to lay down our lives and give them and now let Christ live through us. And so we will love our neighbor sacrificially. It will cost us financially. It will cost us in our time. It will cost us in our energy. It may cost us in our reputations. And we are called to do it not begrudgingly, but joyfully. If we are to love as Jesus has loved us, then our love will not be self-serving. It will be sacrificial. Which means sometimes even giving up our rights in order to love our neighbor. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 8 when they're asking, do we have the right to eat meat? And he says, I'm paraphrasing here, basically you're asking the wrong question. It's not about whether you should be eating your meat or not. It's about what would be loving to your neighbor. And he says in in. Uh, verse 10 of chapter 8, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in, in, in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Some of us are so excited about and so impressed by knowledge that we exalt it above everything else. If someone has knowledge, we think that they are the ones that we should be listening to. And you don't have to look very far across our landscape to see the people that kind of rise in influence. Like, who has knowledge? But Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He also says that by this knowledge, you destroy your brother for whom Christ died. And so we're called to sacrifice. We're called to, to give up the things that we could enjoy or the things that we could have and to joyfully do so to love our neighbors. And we often get really uncomfortable with that because we say like, well, what about, like, 
aren't these rights like good for us? And like, what do we, what do we do? Like, should we just not say anything? Should we just, just go along with everything that anybody says and just give up everything? That's not his point. He actually um, goes into it a little more in 1 Corinthians 9. He's talking about all these different rights that people have. And he's saying like, are we the only ones that don't have these rights? He's not denying that those rights exist. But here's what he says. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Church, listen. This is really critical and important. I don't pretend that we aren't entering into an era where we are losing some rights. I don't pretend that that's the case. What I'm saying is that we should not be surprised and that it is no justification to not love our neighbor. It doesn't change the game plan at all. It's not like Jesus is saying, okay, abide in my love, love your neighbor. And then somebody says, well, Jesus, what if in 2,000 years, um, Christians in America are told they can't meet anymore? Oh, well, in that case, you should definitely abandon the whole love thing and just beat everybody up. Like, obviously not. He's well aware of the situations that are going on. Paul doesn't say that he doesn't have these rights. He doesn't just ignore it or whatever. He speaks that out, but he says, I'm willing to give them up. Like, can we honestly say that we're willing to endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ? That's our calling. That's loving sacrificially. So look, we can, because we live in a country where we can do this, we can speak intelligently and humbly and graciously and patiently about how we think there are certain rights that are important for our society and they're for the good of our people and we're supposed to work for those ends. So I think that's a good thing. I'm not saying that we just like give all those things up and don't worry about them and don't say anything about it. That's not my point. What I'm saying is that it's not the main thing and that they take away all of our rights, we'll still love our neighbor because that's the main thing. There's a difference. We don't idolize these rights. We don't, because if we start to do that, then we start to say at all costs, I must preserve this right for myself. Then we have gone into idolatry and we are not loving our neighbor. But rather, say, I think Freedom of speech is a really important thing. But you can take it away from me and I will still love you. I will endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We can do that. We can bear this kind of fruit that Jesus is talking about. We can love others as ourselves even if all of our rights are taken away. Because of the second thing we see here, which is that true love is not dependent on the actions of the beloved. True love is unconditional. The love of Christ for us is unconditional. Notice when Jesus says he lays down his life for his friends. He says, you're my friends. How are they his friends? In what way are they his friends? Are they his friends because of all the great things they've done for him? Are they his friends because he looks around and says, oh, Peter, I don't know what I'd do without you. 
I would not have made it this far without you. I, you've been in it with me and you've proven your worth and so you are my friend. No. He says in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. Can you imagine the disciples sitting there and being like, I mean, I kind of chose you, Jesus. I left my fishing nets and left everything like to follow you. And yet Jesus unapologetically and very clearly says, no, I chose you. And just as surely as he chose them, he chose us. He placed you where he placed you, gifted you the way he gifted you, put the circumstances around you that he did so that you would bear fruit. He is never looking at your circumstances and saying, I did not see that coming. Well, I'm gonna, I owe them a big apology when they get up here. He chose you and placed you to bear fruit so that your fruit would abide. I've heard pastors say in recent days, like, ah, it would have been so much easier to pastor like 50 years ago. It was so much easier 100 years ago or 200 years ago. I just wish that I was not born in this time. And I'd always, that always rubs me the wrong way because I think, well, but God chose you for this time in this place. I don't know why he did. He chose me to be right here, right now, to proclaim this word to you. If you have issues with that, I encourage you to take it up with him. And if he tells you something, let me know why. Because there are times I wonder. But he did it so that you would bear fruit. That's your job. There's plenty in the world to be frustrated about. There's plenty to disagree with. But our love for our neighbor is not dependent on the actions of our neighbors. It's what separates us, the love from Christ, from the love from the world. Right? Like if we only love people who love us and we agree with, then we're no different than the world. It's our love for those who disagree with us and those who mean us harm. It's our love for them that separates us and says something different. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5 when he says, For if you love those who love you, what, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So whatever people do to us, we're called to love. That's a good thing because next week we actually get to talk about him saying how the world hates you. So that's going to be even more fun. A little advertisement for next week. But we can do that because that's how our Jesus has loved us. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. While we were opposed to him. I mean, you imagine, we've talked about this before, but the early church, how they forged together. How could they do that? How could people sit together in a house, not even in a big worship arena, but in a living room, sit together with people? Like imagine sitting there with a Roman soldier who brutalized your family. Imagine having to listen to this teacher who approved of your neighbor being executed. 
Imagine people who have hated you their whole lives now sitting together in a room and worshiping together and being called to love one another. How do they do that? Because it's how Jesus loved them. The creator who subjected himself to the creation. You talk about laying down rights. He who is entitled to and worthy of complete surrender and worship, completely able to make that happen in an instant if he so desired, willingly endured abuse, imprisonment, and ultimately death in order to love his enemies. And this passage says that this is how we are to love our neighbor. It's a heavy passage. But it also shows us what's possible, that because of this love, we can love one another. And the early church showed that. And it shows, demonstrates the third thing he says about this love, that it's visible. It's demonstrated. It can be seen. It's tangible. It's not just words. It's not just saying like, oh yeah, well, yeah, it's, I, I love this person, but, or I love, I, I, we're called to love people, not to like them. As if there's some definition of love that can say, I am totally disgusted by you, but I love you. I don't even know what that means. True love is demonstrated. It's visible. It's obvious to the people around. He demonstrates that by his friendship, committing to lay down his life, but also because he says, I, I told you everything. I told you everything that, that, that the Father has told me. I revealed all of it. To you. John says in, in 1 John 3, he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Just giving lip service to saying I love people is not what we're talking about here. That's not what the early church has. And we know that because the Roman government was completely confounded by this. There was a time where the Roman government kind of made it a priority to try to eliminate Christianity. To say like, okay, enough is enough. These people are crazy. Like, let's wipe them out. Let's take care of them. And the way that they did that was the only way they knew how to do that was through power and force. And yet the more they persecuted, the more the church responded with love. And it was completely confounding to them. Because they assumed, look, let's cut off the ringleaders. Let's kill them. And then everybody else will just kind of run for the hills. But that's not what happened. Because they were more focused on loving one another than they were in fighting against the persecution. The Romans couldn't understand a movement that was not self-serving. It was unsettling to them. So much so that one of the emperors, about um, not quite a hundred years after the death of Jesus, sent one of his people as like an undercover agent to go into the early church. It's kind of a fascinating story. He said, like, go and find out what makes these people tick so that we can figure out how to destroy them. And so this guy does this, and he comes back and he sends this report. And this is what it says in part. The whole report is about the love that they had for one another. He says this, Further, if one or other of them have bondmen or bondwomen or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. 
by the way, you can hear just kind of the confusion in his face, in his voice, like as he's writing this, like, huh. He says, they do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not, without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the Spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And this is one of my favorites. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast. Look what they're saying there. If any among them have need, and they don't have enough to give them, they fast so that then they can give to the person who's hungry. This is the report that got brought back to them. It wasn't about theological points or about strategies. What he couldn't wrap his mind around was this incredible love that was demonstrated for one another. One of my seminary professors talked about when he went to a, a refugee camp. It was an imprisonment camp, really. And these, these prisoners um, were given rations of water, just enough to keep them alive day to day. So he just got this little ration of water. And um, there were believers in this camp. And these believers um, would go on sharing the gospel, and they were known for their love for one another and for the, the guards and for other, other people in the camp, whether they were Christians or not. They were just known for their love for one another. But also what they were doing is they would share the gospel. And when they would see someone come to Christ, they would want to baptize them. And so what they would do is their little ration of water, every single day, they would take a little portion of that and they would set it aside. And they would pool their water literally together and they would hide it and keep it. Every believer, not drinking everything that they needed to survive, but giving so that when they would reach someone for Christ, they would be able to baptize them with the water that they had to be able to sprinkle over their head. That is sacrificial love that cannot be explained. That's what we're called to. This love that Jesus is talking about is demonstrated through actions that are sacrificial, that are unconditional, that are visible. This is the love we have received from Jesus. And I get the objections. Like I get when we're thinking about this practically, I know that many of you are in situations where you're saying, yeah, but how do I love in this circumstance? Like how do I love? Like one of the big questions I get from people is how do I love a person in this situation without condoning their sin? Or without condoning um, their situation, their circumstances? Like that seems to be a big fear. Can I just say, I don't see that anywhere in scripture that we're to be worried about that. Like, of all the things that are pressing against us right now, to me, that is like the most man-made, built-up, I don't even know where that comes from. 
Like Paul literally says, what do you have to do with judging those outside of the church? It's those inside you need to worry about. And yet we have somehow bought into this lie that our job is to be the morality police for the world. And so what we do is we, we, we think like, okay, well, I just, at all costs, I have to make sure that people don't think I'm condoning this. Do you realize how many times Jesus is placed in a situation where they accused him of condoning sin? And his response is always, eh. I'm paraphrasing. That's not the Greek, but... I mean, it's, he, he never feels the need to be like, okay, just want to make sure that you guys all know I don't condone adultery. Okay, hey, I know I'm eating with the tax collectors. I understand why that's a little unsettling to you. Just FYI, I think stealing from people is wrong. He doesn't do that. And I just want to say to you, to release that burden off you, that's not your job. Like we... The order is very clear. Loving our neighbor out of that, out of loving God flows loving our neighbor and out of that flows all the other things that Jesus commands us to do. You find that when you're loving God and you are just immersed in loving your neighbor, then you'll find that you have words to say when you need to speak truth. You'll find that you can um, preach the gospel when you need to. You'll find that you'll be able to confront sin when you need to because you're so immersed in loving them. We get confused and we've been led astray by a lot of things in our culture. Like one is to buy into this lie that like morality is the center. This is where we start to think that love is just the seasoning. We say like, no, holiness and righteous and morality. We need to make sure that we stand up for the right things in the world. And of course, like by all means, do your best to be loving about it. But if you have a choice between being loving and being morally right, be morally right. No one was more moral than the Pharisees. Nobody. Nobody had anything on them for morality. I think we can all agree that they are not the heroes of the Gospels. Look, there's all kinds of immorality around us. Our culture is purporting all kinds of immorality that actually crushes people and harms them and destroys them. But that should be our motivation is our love for people to say to someone we've been walking with, don't go down this road. This is a road for your destruction. Not to make moral stands about those things in the public. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. And all of these things that we see that are immoral in our world were all happening in Jesus' time. And he did not say, okay, the most important thing you can do is make sure that everybody knows what's right and what's wrong. The greatest commandment is to make sure that nobody around you sins, ever. And if they do, make sure they know that that is really wrong. He doesn't say that. And he certainly doesn't say, make sure nobody can accuse you of condoning sin. If you start with, I need to fix people morally, and I need to make sure that everybody knows what I think is right or wrong, and then you think like, and I'll try to do it in a loving way, then you will move from judgment, just overt judgment, to like kind of a patronizing, condescending, passive-aggressive judgment. It's not any better. Right? Look, we're, we're all, like, we all live in the upper Midwest, okay? So we understand passive aggressiveness, right? Come on. You all know what it's like 
for somebody to, with a judgmental heart, say something passive-aggressive to you. Just kind of as like, oh, by the way, I don't know if you noticed this. Right? We all get that. A son calls his mother and says, Mom, how are you doing? And she says, oh, not well. I haven't eaten for 38 days. Mom, why haven't you eaten in 38 days? Well, I didn't want my mouth to be full if you called. It'll get someone to hit you in the parking lot. We know passive-aggressive judgment, and we do it. If we're not overtly condemning the world for living in ways that, that they don't even see as right or wrong, if we're not overtly putting obstacles in that way through harsh words, we're doing it very subtly. We're doing it like in a passive-aggressive way because we're like, oh, I feel all this towards you. I think you are a horrible, disgusting creature, but I know I'm supposed to be loving, so I'm going to soften my voice. And I'm going to say, I'm saying this in love. And I'll preface it with such meaningful statements as, I don't want you to take offense at this, but that's not loving. Unfortunately, recently, a, a pastor that a lot of us have looked up to and, and valued, we, we've seen a lot of this happen lately where our value of people speaking truth and having knowledge trumps everything else and we just forget about the loving and we, we defend people by saying, well, I know, that, I know they're not the most loving person, but you know, they're really strong in this and they really speak for truth. And you say, that's kind of the thing. Like you can't say, well, they, they're, they're not very loving, but they speak truth, so I'm listening to them. Those are not the voices we should be listening to. And I've been seeing and hearing some really horrible things that are just, they're borderline heretical and they're grievous. And I see people kind of amening it and saying, yes, speak truth. Here's the thing. People who say, well, yeah, I may not be very kind or gentle or loving, but I speak the truth and I'm not afraid to do that. That, that phrase is just a way for the spiritually arrogant to justify bullying people. That's what they do. That's what they've always done. That's what the Pharisees did. They bullied people by saying, well, I'm standing for truth. So to the point where they're condemning Jesus. I mean, this is what's happening like with watchdog sites. These bloggers and podcasters who make their living off of division. And they defend it as they just throw person after person under the bus and try to make you feel like, oh, you know, I can't, I can't trust that person or like I need to separate from them and I can't read that book or do it. I mean, they make their living off of division. That's what they do. And they defend it by saying that they're brave enough to speak the truth. And we get into a culture where they start to paint compassion and understanding as weakness. And they did the same thing to Jesus. Think about this. If you struggle with that, and I, and I get it, I hope you hear that like this is a tension. The truth does matter, but we have to get this in the right order. Truth flows from love. Love does not get added into truth. It just doesn't work that way. And here, I'll give you an example of that. In the Gospels, there are two entities who always speak truth. There are two entities that I can think of that never say anything that isn't true. They're Jesus and the demons. 
Nobody corrected me after first service. No one found something. The demons are known for saying, they call Jesus the son of God. They're saying, it's not your time. And he's saying, you're right, but I'm doing this right now. Like he, they, the demons speak truth. So let me ask you, the difference between Jesus and the demons, is that a seasoning difference? Is that like a polished difference? Like, do you look at them and you say, well, you know, you both speak truth. I like that. Jesus does it in a little nicer way, so I think my vote goes to him. Of course not. What's the difference? Love. Love. It's not a surface difference. That's a fundamental difference. That's a foundational difference. And so when I hear people say, listening to voices and giving voices in their life that don't speak with the fruit of the Spirit on display or the love of Christ, and they say, yeah, well, I know this was really harsh, but you know what they said was true. Like, would you say that to demons? Of course you wouldn't. Love is the first thing. If they don't have love, if they don't speak with love, if they don't demonstrate their love for their neighbor, then they don't, they're not worthy of an audience. When you think that speaking truth trumps love, then you side with the demons who use selective truth to divide and destroy. That's their whole point. So I've made this plea before. I'm making it again. Just don't listen to those voices. They may be right in some things. They may make good points, but they are not of God. Their God is their belly and their end is destruction. Jesus was clear. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Everything else flows from that. How could we possibly receive that kind of sacrificial love and then turn around and be the morality police to the world? If you love your neighbor, if you love the Lord your God and love your neighbor out of that love, then those other things will follow. And this was a really painful, hard sermon for me to write. And part of it is because these are just things that I'm struggling with. And I had to ask myself these questions. Because it is hard to know sometimes, like, well, do I say something about this over here? Do I stand up to this? Do I speak this? Do I, what, what do I do? That's, it's not easy all the time to figure this out. But what I do have to remember is, God, as you have loved me, I am to love others. So when I say something to somebody, I need to think, is this the way God speaks to me? If I'm going to write something on social media, I have to ask myself the question, is this the way God speaks to me? If I'm going to treat somebody in a certain way, is this how God treats me? That's, I have to ask myself that question. And I get it. It's hard. It can be hard because you look at things and you see destruction happening around you and you want to get in there and you want to say, okay, but I want to help the people in this situation. So we've got to speak truth in the midst of that. I'm not, I'm not arguing about those things. I'm saying we have to keep things in the right order. Here's one thing that helped me, but also was so hard this week. Ask, think about this right now. Ask yourself this question. Do you, do you think you know all the sins in your life right now? You think you are fully aware of all the sins in your heart? If you're saying yes, I would encourage you after the service to ask the person sitting next to you, and I'm sure they will help you out. 
I don't think we do. Now let me ask you this. Of the ones that you do know, that you are aware of, struggles that you battle, temptations you face, sin that's in your life, are you successfully battling all of those right now? You fighting the good fight in every single one of those? Or how about this? Is there anything in your life that you know is not of God, but you don't want to do anything about it? Because it just seems too hard. You just don't even know where you'd start in fighting against that sin. Or anything you think might be, this is my personal favorite, anything you think might be against God, you felt some conviction every once in a while and kind of popped in your head, but you're not fully convinced that that is something that you're supposed to address, and so you just keep living in the way that's comfortable to you in the meantime. When I ask myself these questions, and the reason I ask this is because we look at other people in the culture and we think things like, well, how could you not see that this is obviously destructive? And we are completely blind to what is destructive in our own hearts. And all I'm saying is give other people the same grace that God has given you in that. If Jesus showed you and showed me, if, if Jesus just took me and said, Jay, I'm going to show all of your sin to you right now, I would drop dead. I seriously think I would, I would collapse under the weight of that. I would not be able to handle it. So why would I not be gracious and patient with other people for also being in those struggles? They're different struggles. I'll tell you where this hit me was when I thought about wealth in our culture. I just think about, well, there's so many things that we take for granted that obviously, well, obviously this isn't, this isn't um, extravagant. Like I'm, I'm good with, you know, wise with my money and try to be conservative with that and try to be, you know, I give and I try to be frugal and I try all these different things. And yet I just was struck by some things. I got on the interwebs and found some things that were quite painful. Like, for example, we waste 80 billion pounds of food a year in this country while 50 million people go hungry. Because we love all-you-can-eat buffets. And we love to celebrate with food and get all this stuff. And then we just dump it all in the garbage can while someone else, our neighbor literally sometimes, is starving. We do things like watch and hardly are aware of the fact that every year, 300,000 children under the age of five die from diarrhea because they don't have clean drinking water. And it costs a whopping $4 to provide that for a person for 20 years. I spend $4, like, I wouldn't go back to a store to find $4. And I started, like, as I was digging into this, it hurt and I'm saying, like, God, I don't want to go down this road. Like, this is scary. Like, I don't want to. So you start wrestling. If you've ever been there, you're wrestling with these things. I'm like, okay, does that mean I should never buy Starbucks ever again? Should I never go out to eat? Should I not have a car? Should I just sell everything I have and live in a van? Actually, that sounds awesome to me personally, but not to the rest of my family. So I'll not do that. But do you ever go down that road and you start thinking, and what do you do when you go down that road? If you're anything like me, at some point you just say, oh, I just can't even deal with that. I don't even know. So why would you not extend that same grace to the teenager that's struggling with their gender 
And they have a whole world telling them that that's fine and that it's good and that they can choose whoever they want to be and that they're just confused and lost in that and trying to just figure out. And we look at them and we say, change it now! How can we receive the love of Christ? His kindness and his patience towards us, his long-suffering with us, as he forms us into his image from one degree of, a glory, of glory to another. How can we possibly receive that and then look at other people and say, nope, not for you. You have to decide that right now. You have to fix this right now. I have to make sure you know that I disapprove of all of this right now and I can't possibly do anything that would make you think that I approve of you. Who are you that God approves of you? Who am I that God approves of me? Nothing apart from Jesus. Nothing apart from Jesus. So church, we are to abide in that love that Christ has for us. And we are to bear fruit which is loving others as Christ has loved us. So let's do that in this coming year. Let's listen to people and seek to understand them and to love them where they are. Even when we can't possibly understand, we can't fathom how they could see the world in this way or why they don't understand that this is destructive or that we can't understand how they disagree with us on these different things. Like, let's truly love them, not, not just tolerate, not just, not just kind of like, condo- or like just deal with and just kind of keep at a distance and avoid saying harmful things, but let's get in there and love sacrificially and un unconditionally and visibly so that the whole world would look and say there's something different there and that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you (laughs) you love us It's such a simple statement that we just skip by it all the time. It's like a given and a proof, or it's a it's just a something you add on and just say, like, oh yeah, yeah, and you love us. But God, you love us. You love us through the love of your son. It's not less than that, and we can't fathom that because we don't deserve that. And you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And it is through your kindness that you have led us to repentance. And it is your love that sets us free and that that attaches us to you and makes us your own and causes us to abide in you. It is all from your love. And yes, that love for you produces all kinds of fruit in our lives. And fruit of obedience and faithful obedience as as we live our lives according to your will. But we do so, God, in in joyful dependence on you. It's just a celebration of your love for us. God, help us. Like, forgive us for the darkness in our hearts. Forgive us, God, for where we have not offered the same grace to others that you gave to us. 
that you gave to us while we were your enemies. God, help us to do that. Let us be the church that you've created us to be. God, we need you to do that. We need one another to do that. We can't do this on our own. We can't do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it without one another because, God, our sin is just so great. But your grace is greater. Your love is greater. Help us to be the church you have called us to be. Help us to abide in your love. Amen.